Today we're going to talk about a topic that we don't talk about that often. It's a great topic in the Word. It's called the fear of the Lord. Um, we're going to deal with the fear of the Lord a little differently today. Um, and you think, Trace, you've been talking for, for two months on the love of God and the kindness of God and the generosity of God. Where does the fear of God uh, fit in? This is the cool thing about God is that God is capable of having all these facets fully and completely. And we're not real good at that as human beings, you know, to have all these capacities. God, God is both merciful and just. We tend to generally have a tendency to be one or the other. Uh, but God is able to do all that. He, he can execute perfect justice and perfect love at the same time. So he's amazing. Now, when we think about the fear of God, it's an interesting topic. We'll look at something in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and in the New Testament. And we're going to see how, if our lives would really be passionate for God, how it could develop the fear of the Lord in our lives and the lives of others in a positive way. Now, that's a little different than what your mama told you. I will, you will put, have the fear of God in you when I'm done with you. That we're a little different that we're talking about today when we talk about the fear of the Lord. Now, people think about the fear of the Lord and say, I get it, I, I think I understand it. The Old Testament God is mean, harsh, cruel, and nasty. And the New Testament God, revealed in Jesus, he's cool, cute, and cuddly, and we like him. So we like the New Testament God. We don't like the Old Testament God. I'm going to give you a 30-second Bible training here. It's the same God. The same God in the Old Testament, same God in the New Testament. What happens is we don't really study the Word of God and get to know God like we should and know him well. Because it's interesting that people who don't know God will tell you exactly what God's like. There's a, uh, a world-renowned atheist whose name escapes me right now, which is fine with me. His name escapes me. I can't think of who it is. But he has this whole discourse on how awful God is. Now think about this. First of all, he doesn't even believe in God. Second of all, he doesn't know God. But he will tell you how ugly and awful and horrible God is. In fact, when I read his discourse on that, it actually caused me to weep because of just how awesome God is and how beautiful he is and how loving he is and to hear these vile, awful words coming out. And I thought, isn't it interesting that somebody who doesn't believe in God and doesn't know God will tell us exactly what God is like? When you find people who knew God in the Old Testament, where most people think he was cruel and mean and hateful and harsh, when you see God, the people who knew God best would describe God as, they would say, I, we know this about you, God. You are kind and compassionate. You are abounding in love, you are slow to anger, and you hate to send judgment or punishment. Amen. Think about this. These are the people who knew God best in the Old Testament. Kind, compassionate, abounding in love, slow to anger, and hates to send judgment. That's our God. That's the amazing God that we serve. And so we need to really get to know the God of the Bible better, not the God that people have told us he is through little sound bites or half a verse that they've read in Scripture. So we have a, a lot to deal with, and, and we're not going to look at so much, although this will touch, touch on this, our individual fear of the Lord, although some of that will happen, but also how our lives, when they're fully invested in the kingdom. Now, I want to remind you, to be fully invested in the kingdom doesn't mean you have to go be a missionary or pastor a church or do whatever. Our life, if you're a plumber here today, I want your life to be fully invested in the kingdom, in Jesus. Uh, if you're a factory worker, a homemaker, you know, a doctor, whatever you are, 
I want your life to be fully invested in the kingdom, and God needs his people everywhere in every industry and everything on planet Earth. So we're going to look at this from a couple different angles, one the Old Testament, one the New Testament. There's this wild story um, about Jericho. You probably learned when, when we were kids, you know, if you're my age, uh, we learned, even, even in school, in choir and stuff, and in music, we learned stories like Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. I mean, they probably don't teach that anymore, but they used to teach Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. Well, this battle's really interesting. It's the first battle that the Israelites are going to have under the leadership of Joshua in the Promised Land. They're moving their way into Canaan. So their first fight is a big fight with a fortified city of Jericho. The Jericho walls were so thick that they actually had homes in the city walls. That's how fortified this place was. And so Israel sent spies into Jericho. And the king of Jericho finds out there's spies there, so he sends out his people to try to find these spies. Well, this prostitute, what scripture says, or if you've got King James Harlot, Rahab, gets the spies, hides the spies, and when the, the people come looking for him, he said, hey, they're not here. I think they headed this direction. You might go there. So she throws them off course, and she hides the spies on the rooftop of the, the wall. And then I want to pick up on the story in Joshua 2, 8 through 14. Before the spies lay down for the night, she, Rahab, went up on the roof and said to them, now listen to this, said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Now it wasn't just the Israelites, she, gets, she, she explains why they're afraid of the Israelites. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God, and in, in the Hebrew, the capital L, the Lord, he's saying this, you're, this is Adonai, Yahweh, God Almighty, the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now we know in our Christian faith that our fight is not against people. They were going to possess this land, and their fight was human fights. And Ephesians 6, it says, For we wrestle not or fight not against flesh and blood or human beings or people, but we do fight. It says, we fight against principalities and powers and rulers of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Wouldn't it be nice that your life and my life were so entrenched in Jesus that when the enemy came to attack us, his heart would melt with fear? And he would say, there ain't no sense of even trying. They said, we've lost all courage. We're not even willing to fight. But he's not going to be afraid of little old you and little old me He's only going to be concerned about whose we are and if we walk in the authority of whose we are. Because you look through the scriptures and there was people that had no, no effect, no impact upon the demonic because they weren't walking in whose they were in Jesus. So I want to encourage us, as I often do, to not forget, I want to remind myself of this all the time, our faith is supernatural. Our faith is not natural, it's supernatural. We serve a God who's God of heaven and earth. 
there was a story I read about a guy, he, he and two of his buddies from church were walking along Newport Beach in, in Southern California, and they were walking along, and this fight broke out at this bar they were walking by, and they said it was, it was just like the Old West. You ever see the Old West, and the fight breaks out, and you, they always have swinging doors on the saloons, remember that? And so some guy, cowboy, goes flying out in there, and the fight makes it out into the street. They said, that's just what this was, it's like an old Wild West fight, so it goes out into the streets. So these three Christian guys say, I know I, we got to do something about this. So they run over to the, those people. And there's like two or three people wailing on this one guy. He's got blood running down his head. And so they say with all the authority they can muster, stop. You need to quit. Stop doing that. They pay them no attention whatsoever. They keep fighting and beating up this guy. And all of a sudden they're saying, come on, you need to stop. And all of a sudden the people fighting, they stopped. And their eyes got real big. And they began to shrink back, and they thought, wow, what went on here? We told them to stop five times, and they didn't do anything, but this time, they're scared, and they're backing away. And they looked over their shoulder, and they said, the biggest man they'd ever seen had come out of the bar, assuming it was the bouncer. Said he was, I'm sure there's a little hyperbole here, said he was, he was like 6'7", 300 pounds, 2% body fat, you know, so he's just huge, and said, when they saw him, and they said, the look on his face was, I just dare you to mess with me. And said, they just got away. Said, something happened. One of the guys said, I got real bold. That's right, don't come back here ever again. You know, all of a sudden he said, I had all this boldness in me because they called him Bubba. Said, they didn't call him that to his face, but when they talked about the story, they always called him Bubba. This big, massive man was there. And he thought, you know, if I could carry Bubba with me everywhere I go, I would be fearless. You know, I would be, I would be courageous. I would be strong. Well, we have somebody bigger than Bubba. We have God. And so we need to think as we read these stories. The Bible says these stories in the Old Testament are examples for us. They're actually designed to teach us things. And we have this great big God. How big is your God? How big is your God? He's huge. We need to know that. We need to live like it. We need to act like it. We need to, to have an aura about us that our God is big. So the story goes on, and the Rahab says, Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, I mean, she's totally convinced it's going to be conquered, and it was, you will let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all their families. And they said, the spies, we offer our own lives as a guarantee for your safety, the men agreed. They did tell a couple things. One, you've got to have a scarlet rope or, or cord or sash or something that goes outside the window. It signifies this is your home. We're not to touch anybody in that home. And they said, everyone's got to be in the house. If they want to hang out in the street, we can't guarantee anything, but in the house. And I thought about that from our spiritual, because they're examples for us. And I thought, you know, probably those of us here today have some loved ones, friends, who don't know Jesus. And they need saved. They need rescued. And Rahab, by the way, Rahab the harlot does exactly what I said. She packs everybody into her home, and everybody in there is saved. And Rahab becomes part of the Israelite people. She marries a godly man, and she's something like great-grandma to King David. And when you read the lineage of Jesus, Rahab, the former 
harlot prostitute is in the lineage. Now, you know, one thing I love about God, many, many things, one thing I love about God is God, you know, we would probably say, well, we, let's just clean up the lineage a little bit. Let's not put Rahab in. Rahab was a foreigner. Rahab was one of the, the people groups that were enemies of God. Rahab, her profession wasn't so good, so let's just tuck her away. Rahab is actually mentioned not just there, but other places in the New Testament where God says, no, I want people to know about Rahab because I am a life-changing, life-transforming God. Hallelujah. Amen. And so I started thinking, what's the spiritual connections? I have loved ones. You have loved ones who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior who need. And I said, we need to bring them into the house. Now, not just because we think of the house, like this place. But I want to say Jesus said something. Again, I'm making spiritual connections here, so you can do with them what you want. Jesus said, when they were selling everything uh, in the temple, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So I started thinking, all of us should establish a little house of prayer, whether that's on your couch or on your porch or in your backyard or on, on a drive or, or all those things together. And we need to bring our loved ones into that house of prayer and pray for them, confess them before God, trust God for their salvation, for their hope, for life in Jesus. And you may say, well, God won't make anybody do anything. Well, I'll tell you what, prayer matters and prayer moves God. Prayer will do things, God will do things, and I believe their hearts will be sensitized to Jesus. Because I'm telling you, if you really meet Jesus, you'll want to know him and serve him and love him. Paul, the Jesus Christian hater, when he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, changed his whole way of thinking and believing and behaving because he met Jesus. So we need to bring them into our houses of prayer as we pray and lift them up before the Lord on a regular basis. We need to be like the spiritual Marines. No one left behind. No one left behind. We're praying through. We're believing God. We're trusting God. Our loved ones are going to serve Jesus with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength. Now I want to move into a New Testament story. The Holy Spirit's just been poured out. We're in Acts chapter 5. We haven't made it very far into the, this new entity called the church. The Holy Spirit given to people. We are the church. We are the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And we get to Acts chapter 5, and we find that this guy, the backstory on us, this guy named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, have sold a field. And they're coming to the apostles to give, as they're going to deceive them into thinking, all the money. There were people who were selling fields and lands and houses and giving all the money to the apostles and laying them at their feet and said, just do with it what you need to do with it. And they helped the poor and the needy and, you know, financed the ministry and did all those things with that money. And I'm just supposing here, the scripture doesn't say, but I'm just supposing there were some attaboys and accolades and way to goes, you know, and wow, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for all this. Because Ananias and Sapphira want to get in on the action. And so they sell this property and they tell the apostles, we've given it all, but they hadn't. Now, unless you've heard, that was the problem. They should have given it all. Peter didn't say it was the problem. Peter said the field was yours. And when you sold it, the money was yours. And you had that money to do with whatever you wanted. Read, read the story. He's not saying, you should have given it all, but you didn't. But what you did do is you lied to the Holy Spirit. And so Ananias comes in, gives the money. Peter's being instructed by the Holy Spirit. That, you're saying this is all of it? And he said, absolutely. And he fell dead. And the young men carried him out and buried him. Then Sapphira comes in. 
And he said, I've got to ask you a question. Was this all the money that you, you got for the field? He said, yes, that's all of it. He said, why do you lie to the Holy Spirit? The young men are just coming in who just took your husband out dead, and she fell like that dead. Now, I'll tell you, you have a church service where people aren't living right, and they start falling dead? That gets people's attention. I mean, that gets people's attention, and it did, because let's read the story. In Acts 5, 9 through 14, Peter said to her, Sapphira, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Look at verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Great fear seized the whole church. Let's read on. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else, here's an interesting thing about the fear of the Lord, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. You, you read that and say, I'm a little confused. No one dared join them, and then, you know, great numbers of people were added to their number. What, what's going on? I'll tell you what I believe is going on there. No one dared join them for any other reason than I'm wholly committed to Jesus. Today, there's all kinds of reasons you could go to church. You know, maybe you like the music. You know, maybe, you know, it's just always what dad did and grandpa did. Maybe it was, maybe it was um, hey, you know, I'm running for an office and, and it's time to vote. And so I want to go around and see people and, you know, shake hands and, and you know, you, I want to use the church, you know, to help me in some way or another. Maybe you heard, like in this time, they took care of the poor and needy. They were feeding them. Maybe you said, hey, I hear that there's free food for us. So we don't have a whole lot if I joined the church. And they said, no, this, they realized this. This thing called the church is not something you play with. This is not something you just dabble with. See, I've heard people say, say and I've even heard it preach, why don't you try the Lord? Maybe I've said it. Why don't you try the Lord? But that bothers me because it's like, why don't you take this car for a test spin? Why don't you give it a try? I don't think God's interested in us giving him a try. Let's just try him and see if he meets our approval. God's not interested in just meeting your approval. He is who he said he is. He's unwavering. He's unchanging. You know, I say this to people sometimes. Well, I don't like how God does this or that. Then you don't have to serve him. You don't, have to, you don't have to go after God. And I, I've run into people on occasion because they're upset about, you know, suffering and evil in the world. This amazes me. They're mad at God about suffering and evil in the world. But I do want to tell you this. God gave us dominion. We're supposed to go deal with suffering and evil. But we ain't interested in dealing with suffering and evil. We want to watch TV eight hours a day. But we'll be mad at God, so we'll rail against God. And so they're just saying, why doesn't God do this? And, and they say, I'm not going to serve God because I don't like how he handles things. I say, now, that's real intelligent. So you're going to get before the God of all the universe one day and say, I didn't serve you because I didn't like how you did this. Well, that's really going to teach him. That's just a real smart move. When God says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, into hell prepared for the devil and his angels. I would just say logical if I really thought God was a monster and he was awful and evil and he had the potential to send me to an eternal death, if that's the way I actually looked at God. By the way, God's much bigger than all that. But if that's the way I did look at him, I'd be thinking, I better straighten up and fly right. right. If he really has the capacity to do that, and he's over-caffeinated and on edge, I want to make sure I keep him happy. 
I'm going to make sure I do right. Have, have you ever heard stories of series about this, about uh, spouses, like say a lady has an abusive husband? You know what she does? From everything, he tries to do anything not to upset him. Try to make sure everything's right. God's not like that, by the way. He's not an abusive hus- husband. And he's, he's an awesome husband. And, but that analogy, if you really thought he was like that, you'd try to do everything to make him happy. So I, I want to encourage you. God's not just interested in you giving him a test run or a trial run. He is God of all the universe. Amen. What we should do is fall on our faces and say, I am yours. You are God. I am not. I give you my life. Well, but maybe everything won't work out okay. Maybe. Well, I, I want to serve a God that's, you know, going to make me, you know, happy, healthy, prosperous, and all this and that. Well, he might. But I'll tell you what. There's a guy named Stephen preached his first message, and they stoned him to death. That's a short-lived ministry. I, I'm going to preach my first message. Well, here's what we think about that. They killed him. I mentioned this on occasion. I don't think Stephen minded. Now, I don't think he woke up that day and said, boy, I hope I get stoned to death today. But when they were killing him and the heavens opened, he saw Jesus seated at the right hand, standing at the right hand of the Father, and his face shined like an angel. I think he saw into something. He said, I'm more than happy to leave this behind. So I'm not promised. I don't know how things are going to work out. I just know this. He's God. We're not. And when all the dust settles, your life and my life is but a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Eternity is a really, really, really long time. I'm going to share you an old story about eternity so you get this in your mind. You've probably heard it. First time I heard it, it blew me away. Stories about a bird that flies to something like the Rocky Mountains. Once a year, he goes to that mountaintop and he sharpens his beak. And when he's done that so many times that the Rocky Mountain range is flat... That's one day in eternity. Wow. I thought I was going to say the first time I read, that's eternity. No, that's one day in eternity. Wow. I can't even fathom that. That's a long time. I want to say like the Apostle Paul today, I implore you, I beg you, be reconciled to God. Be right with God. Eternity is a long, long time. So, Nevertheless, even though people wouldn't dare join them out of, hey, it's got some perk for me, more and more women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. I think people like joining something that really matters. And they saw this really matters. This is the real deal. Now we see Ananias Ananias and Sapphira dying, so I wanted to give you some, some news today. It's called, for safety's sake, worship God. So I want to show you this. Here's how to stay safe in the world today. First of all, avoid riding in automobiles because they're responsible for 20% of all fatal accidents. So, now you're thinking, I guess I'll walk home. Hold on. Do not stay home because 17% of all accidents occur in the home. Three, avoid walking on streets or sidewalks because 14% of all accidents occur to pedestrians. Avoid traveling by air, rail, which means train, or water because 16% of all accidents involve these forms of transportation. 
Of the remaining 33%, 32% of all deaths occur in hospitals. Above all else, avoid hospitals. But here's some good news. You'll be pleased to learn that only 0.001 of a single percent of all deaths occur in worship services in church. And they're usually related to previous physical disorders. Now, I, I died, but I didn't quite make it to the worship service right over there. I try to bring that up for, for sympathy and, and care. It's, it's working less and less every time. In fact, this year it's been 12 years in February. And I might, I might have told you this. My wife said, you know what today is? And she gave me the date. And I said, yeah, that's my mom's birthday. And she said, what else is it? I said, it's actually technically George Washington's birthday. And she said, what else? I said, I can't think of anything else. She says, the day you fell over dead in the church office. I said, oh, my goodness. I said, I guess it took 12 years for me not to milk that for everything I could. And I finally forgot about that. So therefore, according to this, Logic tells us that the safest place for you to be at any given time is in church. So that's the good news. Guess what? Bible study is safe too. A lesser percentage than that occur, deaths occur while studying the Bible. So, the good news is, in case you were getting nervous today, for safety's sake, attend church and read your Bible. It could save your life. Okay, so I just want you to know that's the good news. Now, the takeaway today is for us to consider how much of the fear of the Lord could be generated in a positive way if we really made the focus of our life to live our faith. What would happen? That's what the early church was doing. What if we decide, you know what? Christianity is not going to be 90 minutes on a, on a Sunday morning. It's going to be 24-7. What would happen? What would happen if we built our faith and began to trust for God to move in mighty ways like we see in the book of Acts? Maybe a positive fear of the Lord would be generated that could save lives. Maybe the fear of the Lord would be put in the hearts of our spiritual enemies, as I mentioned. If Satan and his cohorts saw unwavering men and women, boys and girls of God, maybe his heart would melt like fear. When Jesus showed up, it happened. Jesus showed up to the demoniacs, and immediately the demons saw him and said, what have you come, Jesus, son of God? Have you come to torment us before our time? Now, I don't know. It seemed like they might know that their time's coming. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, they said, wow, we don't even get a wait for that. He's going to do something about us right now. And fear actually were in the hearts of these demons. What if people around us saw a legitimate faith, a powerful faith, a faith that they couldn't ignore, a faith where we prayed and, and trusted God? And people would look at that and say, I want what they have. I want what they have. I believe that's the goal of our lives, is to, to show Jesus to a hurting and broken world in such a genuine, powerful, wonderful way. And it's not mean or ugly. The Bible says that we should be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us why we have this hope within us. And we should be ready to do that with gentleness and respect. And there would be such a power about us that their lives would be changed. What if we decided to make it a force of habit to bring our family and loved ones and classmates and co-workers to the house of prayer? 
again, wherever that's at, your living room, your couch, your deck, your porch, wherever, and bring them before the Lord and trust for their salvation. There's lots of things in the Bible that talks about whole families being saved in the New Testament and the Old Testament, that you and all your house will be saved. That, we need to believe for that and trust God. Rahab did. I, I don't picture in the days of Rahab that she was like, had like a 10,000 square foot home. You go through some neighborhoods and you see homes like that. We were going to a church one time in, in uh, Illinois and for a conference and we're driving along and we're seeing, I think our home's a pretty big home, we're seeing homes beside homes that were like our house that was the guest house. You see what I'm saying? And so the, ha the main house was huge. And we're driving along and I said, well, I guess it isn't any harder to build a church in a rich neighborhood than a poor one. <laughs> you know, it's just these multi-million dollar homes. I don't picture Rahab had a 10,000 square foot home. So what I'm picturing is all these family members were jam-packed, as we would say, like sardines in there, waiting for the deliverance of God, and they got it. Every week we gather to reset our compass, our spiritual compass, our, our reset our life back on true north. Get reminded that the kingdom is what matters. The glory of God is what matters. Being a blessing to him and those around us is what matters. So this week, I encourage you, keep that focus. Hold it. How about I pray every day for my family members? Now, somebody will say, well, the Bible says we should not pray with vain repetition. And I believe that. But there's nothing vain in the repetition. I think we can pay, pray with repetition. It's just not empty, hollow repetition. For me to call out my lost loved ones to the Lord on a daily basis is not vain repetition. That's repetition, but it's powerful and meaningful. And ask God to move in their hearts. And every day I say, I wake up. I'm telling you, it has helped me. I say, let's just do something simple last two weeks. Again, you know, help me keep in my mind that y'all been doing it. So just saying, good morning, Holy Spirit. Good morning, Holy Spirit. I love you. I want to live holy today. I'm going to give you the bad news. This may not make you happy about your pastor, but I started figuring out I need to say it a few more times around the day. There's a few times where it's, good afternoon, Holy Spirit. I'm still in need of your help to live holy. And you just realize my hope of living holy apart from God is zero. I need him. And so I encourage you to call out upon the Lord and keep your focus all week long on how to live for the glory of God. Let's pray together.